Welcome to the Humble and Honest Podcast. Hello world, this is Stephen Francis and you're listening to the Humble and Honest Podcast. Today's conversation is with Chantel Nelson. Chantel is a certified life coach with a master's in Today's conversation is with Chantel Nelson. Chantel is a certified life coach with a master's in counseling psychology. She is passionate about helping women who feel stuck break out of cycles and show up to their life. Her and her husband, Dante, live in Redding, California with their two boys, Zion and Kobe. Today, I talk with Chantel about all things regarding mental health a growing issue in our world today. And we talk about everything from having good self-care rhythms, self-sabotage, to how to even have good friendships in the midst of all of the craziness that's going on in this world. This is a conversation that I believe will challenge and encourage all of you listening today. So hear it now for yourself, my conversation with Chantel Nelson. Nelson. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm so excited to be here. Honestly, I really am. Chantel, I can't lie. I'm such a big fan of your content. And I think you are somebody that not only has a gift, but there's that phrase that we say in church for such a time as this. And I believe that is 100% the ministry that you do right here, right now. And a lot of so many things that are going on in social media and other things that are affecting how people see themselves and treat themselves. But there are some people, some people listening right now that may not actually know your story and what you do. So I want to ask this then, who is Chantel Nelson and how did she get to the platform she's on today? I am Chantel Nelson. I'm actually from Canada. I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I was on the fast track to becoming a licensed therapist. And I was doing my master's, kind of going after this path. And then I took a hard right and came to ministry school in the armpit of California, also known as Redding, California. And so I came here in, I think it's 2013. I did three years of ministry school and I got the... Uh, the ministry school dream, which is like you do first year, you meet your husband in second year, you get married at the end of third year, and then one of you gets a job at the church that you went to. And so that's what happened to us. I met my husband in second year and we got married at the end of third. And then he got hired on as the creative director at of the youth ministry at Bethel Church. And then it eventually morphed into he is now the associate youth pastor there. Um, I spent a couple years being a stay-at-home mom. And so I just knew that something inside of me was going to come out one day. And I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't know how it was going to manifest itself. I just knew that one day God was going to give me a dream or the thing or the idea. And I was just going to take it and run with it. And, And then... About a year ago, I was just in the shower and I just heard the Holy Spirit say, I want you to teach people 
how to come alive in every season. And so that's where my coaching business was birthed out of. It's called Come Alive Life Coaching. And it's just a business and a space where I teach women how to come alive in every season of their life and how to go after those areas in their life where they feel stuck and they feel powerless and hopeless and overwhelmed and uninspired. And we go after it and I get to literally watch women just step into who they were created to be. I get to watch the light come back in their eyes as they show up in their life and enjoy the things that they never used to. Incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I was thinking to myself, one of the things that I saw with your videos, you talked about something called self-sabotage. And the longer I live, the more I become familiar with this term, because I think a lot of us do it way more than we realize. Can I ask you though, you being the specialist, what is self-sabotage? And how do you know if you are self-sabotaging an area of your life? Self-sabotaging is just the fruit of what we actually believe about ourselves. Because if you're in a space where you know who you are, you're confident, not that you don't have hard days, but you just, you know who you are, you know what God says about you, you know your worth. Self-sabotage isn't really a thing in that space because self-sabotage is you doing things or thinking things that actually hold you back from what you want, which is rooted in your belief systems. And our belief systems create the foundation upon which everything else in our life is built on. And it's staying stuck in cycles that are rooted in lies that keep us safe. And so I remember for myself, even I grew up never believing that I was smart And I have a couple of memories of not feeling smart, being told that I wasn't smart. And so I just went through my whole grade school, early into college years, believing that I wasn't smart. And all evidence pointed to the fact that that was true. Like, I didn't get good grades. I did. I wasn't very educated. And I just never really did well in school. Like I'm the person that my biology teacher had to kind of like curve, like the bell curve for me so that I wouldn't fail high school. Like he had to kind of like make some shifts on the bell curve so that I still landed in the part in the space where I could actually pass high school. Um, And so because of just different experiences in childhood and it created this belief system that I'm not smart. And so I would self-sabotage by not trying and saying things like, I don't really care what grades I get. Like, it's not a big deal. Like, it's not, it doesn't matter. I'm not, I'm not going to be a mathematician anyways. And so I wouldn't apply myself. I wouldn't put myself in spaces where I had to show up in a way where I had to be educated or I had to answer the right question. Um, And so I was using, I had these behaviors and these thought patterns that actually kept me, I wanted to be smart, but I wouldn't apply myself because I already had the belief that I wasn't smart. And so I self-sabotaged myself by not trying, by not putting myself in situations where I could fail. Failure was something that really came out of my belief system was just this fear of failure. Because if I failed, then it would prove that the belief that I wasn't good enough and that I wasn't smart enough was actually true. And so I think that questions we could ask ourselves of, am I self-sabotaged? 
sabotaging or not is where am I playing small in life? Where do I consistently feel triggered? Anytime that smartness or education would come up in a conversation, I'd instantly feel triggered. Like I'm the stupid one in my family. I'm not smart. I'm always the one that gets the worst grades in class. They would post our grades in our biology class and everyone would kind of crowd around. It didn't say our names, but it said like our student ID numbers and you would find your student ID and see the grades you got. And anytime that that paper went up, I felt so triggered. And so like, I don't want to look at that paper. I already know that it's going to be bad. And so asking yourself, where am I playing small? Where do I consistently feel triggered? And what am I actually believing about myself? I knew that there were certain things that I was believing about myself that I just thought were true, but I didn't actually stop to see if that was actually true or not. I just believed it. And I think a lot of times growing up, we're not actually taught how to, it's called mindsight, like how to think about what we're thinking. We just think thoughts and we feel feelings and we just do things, but we don't actually have mindsight, which is, okay, what am I thinking? Why do I think this? Where did this thought come from? Is it actually true? And I think over the years, I've just realized that I lived out of these really unhealthy belief systems, a lot of them which came out of childhood, but we create these belief systems that we live the rest of our lives out of, and we don't understand why we feel stuck and why we're consistently blowing up our lives or not believing in ourselves or not getting the things that we want, but because at our core, we have belief systems that actually aren't True. I feel you on that because I know that's something that I struggled with personally. I've, I've talked about it uh, briefly on this podcast. I preached about it uh, last year, talking about how if if I could summarize what the voice in my head was growing up, it was Stephen, you're a loser, you know. And it was Stephen, you're a loser because you know the way your teeth are. Stephen, you're a loser because you're not smart. Stephen, you're a loser because of these clothes that your immigrant parents put you in. Just all of these things that constantly were recurring and how it started to affect the way that I lived my life in the sense of, man, I would try things. And then when it didn't go well, like the voice in my head would just be like, see, told you. So it was actually this weird thing of me trying to prove myself wrong while at the same time also telling myself that this is who I am and to accept it. And just that constant conflict of, it really just kind of messed up how I lived my life socially and everything. I am curious though, in light of that, what do you do when you witness somebody that you care for that's self-sabotaging where it seems like, you know, that there's more in them, you know, that there's greater yet at the same time, they consistently just do something to just kind of blow the situation up and bring them back to square one or however they handle their self-sabotage. Have you navigated that? Yeah, I think it's different depending on the relationship with you ha- that you have with the person and the amount of trust that you have because nobody likes their shortcomings being pointed out to them. And so it depends on the amount of trust that you have with somebody, whether or not you can speak into that place point blank or whether you kind of have to tiptoe around it a little bit in order to commit, communicate the same thing, but not so like, I think you're self-sabotaging with my clients. 
I'll call it out point blank because they're paying me to do that. Like you have hired me to be able to look into your life and see where the gaps are, see where you're not showing up. And so it's a lot easier to do that in a client than it is like in my husband. Um, Cause like I said, nobody wants to hear where they're falling short, but depending on the relationship and the trust that you've built, we've actually committed to each other of like, Hey, if I'm missing something, if I'm not showing up to my life in the best way that you see that I can, like, I want you to actually call it out. But I think if it's somebody like a friend, I don't think using words like, um, I don't even know, like self-sabotage or did you get triggered there? Or did you shut down? Or those kinds of words can tend to have like a People get triggered by them. Like, I'm not self-sabotaging. Like, I'm not defensive because the word in itself has a connotation of not being a good thing. And so rather than being like, hey, do you think you're self-sabotaging in that area? But pointing out what their actions are doing or not doing for them. Like, hey, when you you told me you're going to apply for a bunch of jobs this week and then you didn't, how come? Like questioning their actions rather than I believe that you're self-sabotaging in this area and you should probably look at that. I think that there's always a way that we can speak the truth in love and in a way that makes people feel like they're seen and heard and known and not just us from the cheap seats calling out where we think that they're missing it, if that makes sense. That makes total sense because I do think, first off, you're so right because if I were to go up to my wife and say she's self-sabotaging, like that's just not going to go well for anybody. You know what I mean? And and I also think uh, using those terminologies when you don't necessarily have the credentials can also kind of outrage people because there's a level of like, who are you to diagnose me? And since we're talking about your issues, I'm going to throw some back at you. How about we talk about some of your stuff? And, um, you know, that's just human nature. Uh, but I do think the idea of like, you know what, can I ask you, why did you do that? Or like, even this is something that I've learned a while ago when someone says they do something that they have this type of approach to faith or this type of way of handling a situation, I would say, how is that going for you? Because there's just a level of like, I just want to know. Uh, that doesn't necessarily equal a self-reflection of like, oh, maybe this isn't working. But I do think those type of questions are a little safer than anything that would be considered trying to diagnose somebody or or what have you. Now, let me let me pivot, though, because self-sabotage is a thing we have to handle that. Self-care is is important. Self-care is something that we need to be constantly working on. Um, but life is also hectic and unpredictable. As much as I'd like to say, oh, I, I need to take a Sabbath. I also have days where, oh, my kid is sick. So I got to take care of my kid. And since my kid was sick this day, now I got to work this day. And, you know, all of these other things. And again, you know, being in the church world, there's all these things I do Monday to Friday. And then there's like, hey, we're going to have like a nice brunch yes. for yes. church on it's Saturday. Saturday morning brunch meeting. No. And then it's like, oh, and don't miss church on Sunday. We got the new series. Like, <laughs> <So true. laughs> how do you how do you have a rhythm of self-care that can withstand the ever-changing schedule? Like I said, I'm a three on the Enneagram. My husband has a strong wing three. Like we we will work ourselves into the ground. And so we have to have a day in our week that is like, this is sacred. Like 
everything about it's our Saturday. Every Saturday is our day and we plan it out. We kind of figure out what it's going to look like and we make it a priority to really guard it with everything in us. Um, but so self-care is something I'm definitely working on as a whole. I, I actually have an acronym of self-care that I use in my coaching programs and with my clients. And so every letter of self-care means something and it's sleep, exercise, limits, limits being we actually have boundaries in our life that can't get crossed. Like Saturdays, we have a limit. Like we don't do really anything on Saturdays unless it's a do or die. Um, so sleep, exercise, limits, fun, connection with other people, aspirations. And aspirations are like we're going after something. We're not just doing the daily grind, but there's something that we're going after, whether there's a business idea, a side hustle, we're writing, we're creating music, we're dancing, something aspirational. And then rest, which is different than sleep, because I used to be like, that's where I rest. I sleep. I get my seven hours of sleep. But rest is when you're not sleeping, but you're not doing. You're just being and enjoying and being present. And then the last one is eating well. And I say eating well instead of eating healthy, because I think a lot of times there can be shame and triggers around eating healthy. And so eating well in a way that fuels our body makes us feel great. And so I, I find it helpful to have an acronym because then I know that kind of every area in my life, oh yeah, I'm doing, my sleep is good. I'm exercising every day. I've got my limits on my Saturdays. I have something fun planned this week with some friends. I'm getting connection with my husband on a date night. I'm going after some of my aspirations. My, I'm resting on my Sabbath and we're eating well throughout the week. And so that's kind of how I approach self-care in this particular season. I think that's dope. You know, you said in a in one of the videos you did that you wake up at like 4.30 or something crazy like that? I do wake up at 4.30. Well, first off, whoa. Second, <laughs> uh, how do, what do your evenings look like? Because like um, you and your you and your husband don't binge watch something on Netflix before bed, or is it just like, oh, let's save it for Saturday or something? We, uh, yeah, people ask me this a lot because he's a night person, and I'm a more like we are polar opposite. He comes alive at night. He's ready to create and dream, and at about seven thirty, eight o'clock, like I'm starting like we're closing shop pretty soon, and so we put our boys to bed between like six forty five and seven. And so we're like adamant about getting those kids down seven o'clock. They're in bed. Prayers are done. Teeth brushed. Everybody's in bed because that's when our time starts, like right at seven, seven fifteen. Then we get like a good, I would say like two hours together because I like to try and be in bed between nine and nine thirty. And so we've just had to prioritize our date nights together, but also that precious time after the kids go to bed before I go to sleep. And we're pretty intentional with it. I can't watch shows anymore because I just fall asleep. And so our way of doing it is like, I'll fall asleep next to you while you watch a show in bed. That's kind of the way we do it now. But we'll get some good connection time before I have to go to sleep. Whatever works, man, because I think uh, rhythms is important. And I think I, I personally, you know, keeping it humble and honest, I need to get better at that because I've been doing the, I wake up at five, work out, meet with God for like an hour or so, and then go about the rest of my day. It's been a roller coaster because I just don't go to sleep at the same time. And what I liked about something that you said 
but you mentioned how you could take, you can go to sleep from like 10 AM to like whatever time and think like, yeah, I got my seven hours. But then the next day you go to sleep at like 7 PM and wake up, whatever. It's like, Oh, I got my seven hours, but that's not actually like a rest rhythm. That's actually something that's inconsistent and your body doesn't respond to that the same way as if you consistently go to sleep at the same time. Obviously there's exceptions, but yeah. I found it surprising though. Cause I was like, it has to be the healthiest to go to bed at the same. I mean, to just get that eight hours of sleep. Like as long as you're getting that eight hours, it doesn't really matter. So I found it surprising that the research showed that it doesn't matter how many hours you get. Like you, the healthy amount is seven, but that the consistency of going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time is what actually helps our circadian rhythms balance out. I mean, it's like anything in life. We have to be consistent. Otherwise, we're not actually going to experience the benefits of it. And I was trying on Saturdays and Sundays to stay up later and I mean, sleep in. I have two kids, but I was trying to like, okay, I'm not going to get up every day at 430. I'm just going to go to bed a little bit later, sleep in. And I was finding that it was just throwing me off. Like those days that I wouldn't get up early and that I would go to bed a little later. And so people are always like, you wake up at 4.30 on Saturdays and Sundays too. And I'm like, I do because I was trying the other way and it just wasn't benefiting my life at all. It's just easier and more fruitful for me if I just do this every single day. I mean, especially if you have kids, that space in the morning without needs is like that is part of the rhythm. Mm -hmm. It's not just the sleep, but it's the mental space, the physical and emotional, like nobody needs me right now. And I just need this space in order. I always say I wake up with a tank that's 30% full. And between the hours of 4.30 and 6.30, I'm just, we're filling up that tank to if it's 70%, if it's 80%. But I always start at a 30. And my goal in my morning routine is to just fill up my tank so that I'm filling from a full tank and not a 30% tank. in a moment but i want to let you know that you can support this show through patreon for as low as one dollar a month that's right four quarters you can help continue these conversations that you are listening to today and as a thank you i will be giving you a ton of bonus material we have the video version of these conversations that will be available you can get the full unedited version me and chantel talked for almost 90 minutes it was such a wonderful conversation so many great parts that couldn't make this version of it and you can also get my response to these episodes for all that and so much more i put a link in the show notes so you can check out the patreon page but for right now Let's get back into this conversation with Chantel Nelson. Here's my question then. Can self-care ever become selfishness? When can self-care actually be a disguise for you hurting other people through what you're trying to do for yourself? Is that even like a thing? 
could that happen? Now? I think that self-care can only become selfish if we're using our self-care practices to protect ourselves or to disconnect from other people. Like, I think in the name of self-care, like I can't hang out, like I got to do my self-care routine, but really it's just you disconnecting and not wanting to show up and be with people. But I think of it as, I think of self-care as like the airplane analogy, you know, like they give you that spiel that you have to put on your mask before you can put on anybody else's. And I think of, I think self-care in this day and age can feel like, you know, the, the 15 second reels of like the face mask and the coffee and the this. And I think all of that is just expressions of self-care, but ultimately it's like, we have to take care of this self, of this temple, of this physical body, because our physical body is limited and we only get one. And so if we don't put on our proverbial mask first, then we're trying to help everybody else's bodies work and function and fed and whatever. And ours is ultimately dying. And so I think we have to take care of ourselves first, but if we're doing it to protect ourselves, like I used to back when I had a lot of anxiety and I just didn't like being around people. I would use my self-care in order to protect myself from actually connecting with people. Like, oh, I got to go home, got to go to bed. I can't stay out. I can't go to that because I got to sleep. I got to X, Y, Z. And that was to protect myself and not actually take care of myself. It was to protect it. Mm. I'm curious, though, you have experienced some great success with this. I mean, literally because of something you posted on Instagram, you're, you're getting new clients, you're on podcasts like this, but it wasn't always like this. In fact, for a lot of people listening right now, they want to be where you're at, but they feel stuck. And you actually expressed how you felt stuck in your calling for quite some time where literally your husband seemed to be growing in success and you were kind of in the same place wanting more. Can you kind of share that experience uh, and what you would encourage to the person that kind of feels stuck right now in the pursuit of the calling that God has placed on them. Yeah. I think the idea of calling and destiny and purpose and promises and dreams can all feel really scary and triggering and painful. I think a lot of times we can feel pain when we don't feel like we're walking in our calling or our purpose and somebody else is. And I think they, I think those things can almost feel mystical too, of how do I actually find my calling and walk in it? And I would say that it's a lot easier and closer to home than you think it is. I think social media makes calling and purpose feel like it has to look like numbers and external success and however many things you're invited to. And I think all of that plays a role with social media that we, us living out our purpose and calling, we measure it up against what it looks like for somebody else being highlighted. And so I think there's that there's just pressure on having to figure out what it is and growing up in the church, having to this pressure of having to walk out the call of God on your life and being like, am I ever going to find it? Like, is it, will, I, will someone come up and tell it to me? Is he going to say it to me? Is it going to just pop into my head one day? Or how am I actually going to find this calling? And 
but I think it's a lot closer to us than we actually think it is, but we're so focused on looking at what it looks like in everybody else and not actually what makes us come alive and what makes us feel like we're living in purpose in everything that we do. Like I remember when my husband was, so we got married in 2016 and he was getting all these immediate opportunities afterwards. He does spoken word and he's a great preacher and all of these things were happening for him. And I remember there was a point where I even was like, should I do spoken word? Like, should I move into that music space? Like, is that what'll make me feel? Cause I saw it in him and it was such an absurd idea. Cause there's no way that I would ever do anything like that. But I got to see what him walking in purpose and calling looked like manifested through him that I saw my life. And I was at home with, a newborn kid. I was working as a part-time nanny, which I called like being a glorified babysitter. Like I had, and I had a master's degree and I had finished ministry school and I was newly married. And then I was just a mom and a babysitter. And I was at home on Pinterest trying to learn how to cook. Cause I didn't know how to, while he was traveling and speaking and preaching and spoken wording at all these different places. And I would say that I did not do the best job of managing my heart in that season because I got really fearful. Like I would I would have tormenting dreams of just always being behind the scenes. And that sounds so lame, but the cry of my heart wanting to feel like I was doing what I was called to do. And all my dreams, like I would wake up in the night, like I couldn't sleep because it, I would just have these dreams of um, him get, being successful, him getting to do what he wanted and me just having to stay home. And I remember, I'm, I might butcher this, but there was one night and I, Dante gives me prophetic words in my sleep, like often. It's usually around 3 a.m. where he'll like wake up, like say something to me that's like really profound and prophetic, and then he'll go back to sleep. And so this one time I'm up and just swirling in my mind and he just wakes up out of his sleep and he was like, um, you, he's like, you just looked around and you hated your reality, but then you realized that your reality wasn't true. And he went back to sleep. And I was like, man, what does that even mean? And it was that scripture of you shall know the truth and the truth will set, will set you free. That word truth, translate that word translate to reality. Like you shall know your reality and the truth of that will actually set you free. And I was living in this like fearful fantasy, not fantasy in like a weird way, but like I wanted my calling to look this way. And I thought it was going to look this way. I thought it was going to feel like I'm on stages and I'm doing all these crazy things and everybody's seeing me and all this. And maybe it's being a three that I needed that kind of external validation in to, in order to feel like I was enough. But I took a look at my reality and realized I'm trying to create something that actually isn't true. And no wonder I feel so tormented because I'm believing all these lies that it's, I believe the lie that God was going to come through for everybody else, but for whatever reason, he wasn't going to come through for me. And I was pulling that lie. It goes back to our belief systems. Like that was the truth for me. 
I was living that out. It was my daily bread, basically. It was like, God's going to come through for Dante, but not me. Oh, look, they're another person. They got to live out their dream. They got asked to do this. He's going to come through for them, but he's not going to come through for me. And I had to take a real hard look at the truth that I was believing that was actually creating the world that I was living in that I hated, that I looked around and I didn't like the life I was living because I was believing all of these lies about myself, about God, comparing myself to other people. Um, And so I say that I didn't steward my heart very well in that season because I just let it torment me and create anxiety in me. And I didn't open up about it. And I didn't let people know like, Hey, I feel really insecure standing next to my husband. And I feel really afraid that my life is never going to happen for me. I really feel really afraid that I'm not going to feel like I get to walk in purpose ever. And I just, I, I suffered in silence basically. And I figured it out along the way. Like this one time I remember Dante got asked to do something. I think he was doing a spoken word at church. And I heard the Holy Spirit say like, I want you to celebrate others the same way that you want them to celebrate you when it's your turn. And I realized that I was just being so like, I just made it all about me and, and what I wanted and how I wanted it to look like. And now being more on the other side where I actually feel like for the first time that I'm walking in purpose, it doesn't look like I thought it was going to look. It doesn't look shiny and fancy and everything is easy and all these things are happening. And it might, it might look like that way from the outside looking in, but I'm, I'm still the exact same person who shows up to my day and faces hard things and has to choose what I'm going to believe for that day and has to figure how to juggle these different opportunities while also changing diapers and doing meal planning. Like my life is all the same. It's just, I feel purposed in it, but that purpose didn't come because of the external things, the podcasts and the business and the opportunities and the speaking, none of that came before I actually figured out how to actually show up in my life first. Like I had to figure out how to do that behind closed doors, being a mom, nothing happening for me, my master's degree, feeling like it was wasting away on the shelf. And I had to wrestle with, am I good enough? And will I love my life? Whether any of this external stuff that I want to happen happens, can I show up today and love my life today? And I can honestly say that I came to a point where I loved my life, like everything in it, who I was, relationships I had built, the things I had built inside of myself. I loved all of it. And then the doors opened. And I can say like, if those doors would have opened before I figured that stuff out, I would have, I would have died. I would have crumbled under the weight of performance and having to feel successful and having to be good enough. And these external things dictating and defining whether or not I was good enough. And so I think it's a journey. I think everybody has to go through some kind of a hiddenness. And it sounds cliche, but it's like our 
our lion slaying season. Like we're never going to get the giant until we like slay some lions and bears first. Like it's our shepherd herding season. We're never going to get to the palace until we can learn how to shepherd sheep and do it well. And I think the same for us, like there's lessons that we have to learn. There's things that we have to wrestle through and work out inside of ourselves so that when we get, when we get to walk out in purpose and calling and our dreams are coming true, that we're actually able to sustain it and hold on to it without us crumbling. Something that helps in those seasons when we're waiting is the community that, that is around us. I actually really resonated with the conversation that you had where you talked about how you didn't value friendships and community the way that you could have or should have and how that kind of left you in a difficult position. And now that I'm in my 30s and I think of how little close friends that I have, and there's that joke, the greatest miracle Jesus ever did had was having 12 close friends or whatever. And now I'm like, I actually cannot allow my life to become so small that I don't have people around me that can both keep me accountable, but also I can lean on. But it's also very easy for friendships to be so shallow how do you cultivate valuable friendships and community? Yeah, I like you said, I did not value friendships at all growing up. And not that I didn't value value them. I thought I did, but I didn't have an understanding of what it actually means to have community. Like when people would say that, like, it takes a village, I'd be like, no, it doesn't. It just takes me. Like, I'm awesome. I don't need a village. I can make anything happen for myself. And I, I don't know if I shared this story on that other podcast, but... I I managed to make it through an entire four-year degree and not make one single friend. And I was proud of myself for it. I was like, I have a 4.0 GPA and it's because I didn't let people get in my way. And But I came to, it was my capstone course in my psychology degree where I realized like, man, I missed out. Like I've, I've been with these people for four years and they don't, they don't know a single thing about me. And I got up in front of my class. We had to do like this presentation and kind of what we had learned in our four-year degree. And I apologized. I was like, I'm so sorry that I never showed up for any of you, that some of you tried getting to know me over the years and I shut you out. And I had so many people come up to me after like, thank you so much for sharing that. And you could just tell they were really touched by it, but it sent me on a journey of okay, I don't, I don't know how to make friends. And I always felt alone and I could be surrounded by people, but never, nobody ever fully knew me. And when I came to Bethel and here it's, we focus so much on community and building community and going after community. And I didn't know how to do that. Like I was like, do you just pick people in proximity and then you get to know them and you go on coffee dates. And, but I felt in my second year of ministry that God told me to, that when I would walk into a room, he would highlight people that he wanted me to be connected with. And I would find out that the people that he were highlight, he was highlighting to me were people that I was intimidated by and people who felt like they were healthier, more confident, more figured out on their journey than my insecure, fearful, codependent self was. But I, 
challenged myself to go and build friendships with people and learn how to get to know somebody and how to open up myself and be honest and vulnerable. And it wasn't really until I got pregnant with my first. So it was right after ministry school had ended. I got pregnant with my first and I we didn't have any friends because after ministry school, everybody moves away. Like they go back to their countries. Like everybody thinks it's the dream being able to stay in Reading, but it's not because everybody else leaves. And so we have to find community again, just like they do in their other countries. Um, so all of my friends had left. We had just gotten married. I had just gotten pregnant. And I had a friend who was pregnant, who knew a friend who was pregnant, who knew someone else who was pregnant, who knew someone else was pregnant. And we planned this meetup at a restaurant for breakfast. And the only thing we had in common was we loved Jesus and we were pregnant and we kind of got to know each other. We thought it was just going to be a one-time thing, but we were like, let's try this again in two weeks. And then we tried it again. And then we did it two weeks later and two weeks later. And then we had our babies and then we decided to start meeting weekly. And we met every single week for, we still do it today every Tuesday. It's been five years now and it's ebbed and flowed. There's only three of us left. It started with six, but this was the space that I learned how to create, I don't know if this is the word, but strongholds of friendship in my life. God showed me this picture of when he asked me in second year to start building friendships. And he showed me that every friendship that I built was actually building up a wall around myself that when the enemy tried to come and attack that he actually couldn't get through because I was so surrounded by all my friends. I realized that like I had built this community and this stronghold in my life that actually protected me from checking out and shutting down and going into crazy anxiety, anxiety spirals because I couldn't bump to the left or to the right because I had somebody there messaging me, calling me, FaceTiming me or something. And I just was so impacted by that picture that the Lord gave me because I realized that I'm not just building friendships for friendship's sakes. Like it's not just like a fun thing, but our friendships and the relationships we have with other people are the things that protect us and ground us and call us out, call us higher when we're in seasons where we're swirling and we feel like we're not good enough and that we're, we can't make it and our kids don't sleep through the night. And like, they're the things that keep us going in every single season. How do you cultivate that? It seemed like you put yourself out there, but I mean, it, I think it's so easy to attend a group and have a conversation, but it's like there was no depth there. Uh, well, other than obviously the Holy Spirit pointing out people that you needed to connect to, was there anything practical that you did that said, hey, I'm going to take it to the next level with this person? Yes. There's a specific memory that I have. It was right at the beginning of, it's called mom group, right at the beginning of mom group, the genesis of that. And we would do these things once a month called mom's night out where we would like, we live in Reading. So we like go to the Olive Garden or like the Mexican restaurant down the street. It's really sad. Our food scene is sad, sad, but we would go without our babies and we would just hang out with just us moms. And it was one night I was getting ready and I was kind of dreading it. Cause I was like, all we ever do is we just talk about our babies, but our babies aren't with us. Like we just talk about the same things that we do in mom group, but we just don't have our kids with us. And my husband challenged me. He was like, if you want to see something else happen in your mom group, then why don't you be the first one to show it? Like, if you want vulnerability to be a thing in your mom group, then why don't you be the first one to be vulnerable? 
And I, I went and I was like, I don't really want to do that. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to try. And we were talking. Everybody starts talking about their babies, sleep training, whatever we're at the time. And then I just... I remember opening up, it was something about my marriage. I don't really remember what it was, but something, an area that we were struggling in. And it was like a switch flipped. And every single girl around that table opened up about their marriage and what they were struggling with. And like, yeah, like we have a hard time with that too. And we can't seem to get connected in that area. And they would even say that vulnerability, a lot of the vulnerability in their group started with me. And I'm not saying that to toot my own horn, but it was like the challenge from my husband of like, a lot of times we just wait for relationships to be what we want them to be. And if they're not, we're like, well, I don't got time for you. I'm going to find somebody else where it starts with us. Like if we want vulnerability in a friendship, then we better be ones to show up and be vulnerable first. If we want, we talk about deep things and we talk about hard things, then you talk about hard things first. And it's vulnerable because you don't know how you're going to be responded to. Everybody has their own like idea of how deep they want to get. And when you open up yourself and be vulnerable, you run the risk of, Ooh, that's a little too much, but you never know if you don't try and you never figure out what's on the other side of vulnerability, which is, deeper connection, greater friendship, conversations that you go home and you're like, man, that was a great night. Like we went after it. We didn't just sit around and like, there's nothing more that I hate than small talk and just sitting around a table and just talking about nominal things. Like if we're going to have a conversation, I want us to go deep and I want you to know me and I want to know you. And so I think being what you want in a friendship first would be one thing. And two, don't just pick people who look like you. I think we have this entitled idea that our friends should be what we want and that they should look like us, talk like us, think like us. Like my mom group, I always say this, if we were to, if you were to put me in a room with a bunch of people, like they probably wouldn't have been the people that I would have picked out because I would have picked out the people that looked like me. But being surrounded by so many women who have different opinions, different ideas, different ways of doing things, different strengths, diff- all these different things like have challenged me. Like I have become a better, deeper, more empathic, more understanding, kind person because I don't just hang around with people that look like me. And so I think that would be a thing too of take a look at the people around you and don't just look for what it is that you want, but like, Oh, that person could actually, I like the way that they do this and they would challenge me in this area and lean in. I think it's easy to pull away really quickly when it doesn't go according to plan or we have an argument or there's like a disconnect. And that's how my friendship always used to work. Like there'd be a disconnect or we would argue about something and then it'd be like, I'm out. But it's like in a marriage, like you can't, just dip whenever things don't go right. And if you want to have healthy, lasting friendships that are actually deep and meaningful, you can't just peace out when you have a disconnect or you misunderstand each other or you get in an argument or if something just feel you stay and you figure it out and you talk it through. And so many of my, the depth of my friendship is because we have called each other out on things and we've asked each other, like I've had a friend who asked me like, do you like me as much as I like you? And those kinds of like hard questions, like painful, like 
I'm just going to open up my heart and let you see me and run the risk of you hurting me. But I think the strength of our relationship lies in how much we're willing to actually open ourselves up to other people. Chantel, there's so much that I've learned from you today. There's so much that people can learn from you. My last question, how can people connect with you? How can people keep up with uh, what's going on in your life? I am on Instagram every day. I'm going to try and take a day off someday, but it's um, Chantel E. Nelson on Instagram. Um, That's where I put updates to my life, my marriage, podcast, business, and then my website, comealivelifecoaching.com. Beautiful. Chantel, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. there you have it. My conversation with Chantel Nelson. Chantel, thank you so much for this humble and honest conversation. I learned so much and I truly believe that I also made a new friend. Guys, for more from Chantel, including this podcast that just released with her and her husband, I put a link in the show notes. Also, while you're checking that out, feel free to leave a review for the Humble and Honest podcast so more people get the chance to know about it. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you again on the next episode of the Humble and Honest podcast.